E4E is brought to you by the University of Delaware Partnership for Public Education. In an effort to increase the availability and accessibility of UD expertise to Delaware's P12 educators, leaders, and policy influencers, we have invited faculty members from the University of Delaware's nine colleges to share their research. We hope you enjoyed today's critical conversation and consider ways you might be able to leverage relevant research and UD expertise to advance policy and transform practice. Hello, my name is Dr. Anastasia Pernton, and I'm the Associate Director of the Partnership for Public Education. Joining us today is Dr. Janine Dinovias. Her research has been published in Ethnic and Racial Studies, the Journal of Higher Education, and International Journal of Qualitative Studies in Education. We are also excited to have Dr. Natalie Princillis, the Supervisor of Unique Programs in Christina School District, and Monique Martin the Equity Education Associate of the Office of Equity and Innovation in the Delaware Department of Education. Today, we've invited Janine, Natalie, and Monique to speak about the Brave Community Method, an approach to supporting learning when discussing race. Thank you for joining us today, everyone. Thanks for having us. This is exciting. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. We're really excited to have this conversation. Janine, my first question is, You created the Brave Community Method to support students learning about race. Can you elaborate more on what the Brave Community Method is and how can that method help schools become more equitable places? Sure. It's a real honor to be here with my colleagues. Actually, I want to say this first because the work that we did together in Delaware around Brave Community, specifically with Natalie, with Monique, actually fed directly into the book. And as usually with the method, every iteration of the workshop that I do actually grows the method in a way. So I'm really excited that they were able to find the time to be with me on the pod. The Brave Community Method basically uses principles of good learning, the things that we need to learn well, which I call grounding for learning, to produce situations where People trying to teach and learn or work on issues of racism can be best positioned to develop two characteristics. One is what I call intellectual bravery or, you know, the ability to ask hard questions, the ability to hear answers that really challenge what you thought before, the ability to lean into the discomfort of learning something new about something that is deeply challenging and tense, right? Fraught in the society. That's one thing. And the complement to the bravery is what I call resilient empathy. And that's the ability to actually receive someone else's bravery with trust, with generosity or graciousness and a sense of good faith. So you have the grounding for learning as the foundation of the method. And that is what best positions everybody. And, you know, we think of learners in a broad way. So learners could actually be fifth graders. Learners could be teachers. Learners could be an equity team, school leaders themselves, right? Best position folk to develop that bravery and that sense of interpersonal empathy. So that's Brave Community in a nutshell. The second part of your question, how can it help, right? I think it becomes obvious in the explanation. When we are running around talking about we need to talk more about racism, we need to have more conversations in this country, we don't actually mean that. We mean that we need to change mindsets 
We need to transform organizations and schools. We need to develop the capacity to talk to one another directly about these problems. So when we say conversation, it's kind of misleading. So what the method does is take that off the table. We're not here to talk or have a book club. Those are important. We're here to actually take a learning approach to change that supports racial justice in our settings. So it, it has been used for folks who are really thinking about their classroom. How will I teach about Columbus in this contentious time? How will I teach about U.S. history in an accurate way in this contentious time, right? But it can also be used for folks like Natalie and Monique, and I want to hear from them, who are actually helping adults, whether they be leaders or teachers themselves or policymakers, to do this work. So Janine, in your paper, you mentioned professional development workshops can assist teachers in learning to use the Brave Community Method across different contexts. What do these workshops look like? This is the part where you talk and you don't like sell the store. (laughs) The workshops are a secret. No, just kidding. The workshops are really interactive and it basically has three parts. The first arc is me doing a longer version of what I just did explaining to folks what the method is, telling them the actual background and research that produced the method, which I won't go into here, explaining to them how it works, explaining to them those three components, like what is grounding for learning, what is bravery in this context, and what is resilient empathy. Then we break up into small groups or Zoom breakout rooms, as it were, a lot of the time, to have the opportunity, folks have the opportunity to use these case studies that I've written that are original and kind of reflect the common issues that we face in our context around race, right? Race and racism. So they have a, a little like rip from the headlines, one page case that they get to work through using this approach that they just learned from me. And that gets us to two things. One, it's integrating the, the approach. Two, it's interactive. It gets you in the mindset of saying, okay, if this were me in the faculty meeting, if this were me as a principal talking to my teachers, if this were me, a fifth grade teacher dealing with a parent who wanted to change my curriculum, how would I react? That's the second part. And then the third part, which is my favorite part, we all get back together and we not only reflect on discussing the case, but how would this work for me in my school, me in my C-suite, me in my high school, you know, people actually get to ask me questions, ask each other questions, kind of build knowledge that way, but also think very practically, what can I take away with this method to go do next week immediately? How would that work? So Monique, how does Brave Community Work fit within Delaware's commitments and initiatives related to equity? Yeah, that's a great question. And I kind of push back on the word initiatives because I see equity in education as ideally one and the same. And so it's not an initiative. This is actually the fabric that we all should be weaving as part of educational equity and justice. So I've been very, very fortunate to be able to work with Janine a couple of years ago pre-COVID. And I was really, really excited because, you know, when I think about Brave Community, it goes beyond the conversation. It includes you looking in the mirror, which is one of the most powerful tools that you have at hand 
and acknowledging that the real issue at hand is how are you going to build the stamina to be able to stand on common ground with people in order to prioritize young people to disrupt the pathways that don't always go forward to college and career, the ones that go to hospitalization, incarceration, and early graves. And unless you are privy to a brave community, you're not going to be able to have those conversations. There are levels of resistance that many people tend to default to because they don't have the tools, but a lot of times they don't have the will, you know, and in education, this isn't optional. We even have legislation in Delaware, it's Diversity 220 in Title 14 Education for Delaware, where we have to implement eight indicators in our district and school success plans and 2.3 Um, The indicator speaks to eliminating disparities. And there are folks who never want to talk about race. However, race intersects with every category. And so it's inevitable. You have to talk about race because in this public service, we are supposed to provide better supports and opportunities intergenerationally to our young people, school communities, and families. And we all know that difficulty is the excuse that history never accepts. And that quote is more than 100 years old from Edward Morrow. Everyone needs to build the capacity and stamina to be able to engage in this work and understand that it's a non-negotiable. So Janine's research and book and is long overdue and beyond necessary if we actually want to disrupt the injustices and inequities in education and have a sustainable and scalable, I would say, vision (laughs) for opportunities that aren't limited to our young people, but more so the communities, because it takes a village. Monique, thank you so much. I think you really just set up the perfect entrance for my next question, which is that clearly there's this really critical need to center equity in the work of schools. And so Natalie, can you share about how districts support schools equity work? Gladly. Thank you for having me. And I'm just so fortunate to be in this space with such great minds. I was first introduced to Janine's work when I was in another school district, and this was around the summer of 2020, when we recognized that as a district, we needed to do some things to prepare our teachers as well as our leaders for what we recognized that our students were experiencing in communities. And we needed to make sure that we had spaces and the right language to begin to work with our students surrounding what they have exposed as inequities within their schools. And we recognized and we honored it and we did what we needed to to begin preparing our leaders and educators for that. Fast forward a year or two later, I've transitioned to Christina School District which I serve as their equity officer for the district and also charge with some many of the grants that supports the work of schools. Exactly as Janine stated, what I most appreciate about Brave Community is that it requires of all of us 
to take a learner approach to change. As adults, I firmly believe that we know some of the things that we need to change within ourselves. And there's a lot of self-guided work that can occur. What's critical for educators is that we are to be expert, okay, in instructional practices that ensures for the success of false learners and therefore subsequently families and the greater communities that our learners um, exist in. So we have to take the understanding that we're never at that space in which we know all that we need to do to support learners. So it's so critical that this work is anchored on the understanding that we are constantly taking a learner's approach to change. I use a lot of what I've learned from Janine in the planning of some strategic work and initiatives that I'm in charge of here. And at Christina School District, we believe that supporting students in their whole selves is to honor their individual and cultural identities. So when we engage in work surrounding our strategic plan, as uh, Monique indicated, it's not a singular initiative, but it should be weaved in. It should be pervasive. Our equity needs surrounding every aspect of our operation, whether it be facilities to instruction to technology need, we need to understand what our equity needs are surrounding those things are. And we also need to make sure that there are diverse stakeholders at the table that's offering voices as to what that equity needs look like, how it manifests. And we also need to make sure that we put our money <laughs> where we recognize that the needs exist. So we need to make sure that there's the human as well as material capital to address those needs in ways that is sustainable. We never want to take the approach of a once and done as if we did this, okay, now we can move on to the next thing. But we have to recognize for any financial decision that's being made surrounding any initiative, any focus, that there is a phase plan as to how this will continue to be supported because the needs will evolve. They will continue to manifest themselves. So really, as Janine stated, the grounding of the work and that work surrounding resilience, empathy. And, and every time she says it, it brings chills to me because that concept is just layered and you never get to a point of completion because what's inequitable today will manifest its way differently two years from now, three years from now. So when I'm thinking through of something that's going to impact my kindergartners, I'd love to see how that's going to impact as they transition on and progress on through the school district up to the 12th grade and post-secondary. So what Monique and Natalie shared actually helps me break down the concepts a little bit more. And so we take this idea, right? So picture your avatar. It's either Natalie or Monique, one of these fabulous equity Avengers, right? <laughs> so they're going to run a session on disparities in reading levels in fourth grade in the state. I'm just making this up, but this happens in every state across the union. Okay. So what most people are going to expect is that they're going to come into, let's say, a professional development with eye rolling already. They're already eye rolling. They're already tense. They're already anxious. They're already frustrated. They've had a gazillion of these and they really needed to prep their lesson. They really needed to be 
prepping for a big state test. They really needed to be putting their head down on their desk. And here they are again, listening to another person telling them how they, as a fourth grade teacher, need to dismantle racism. They're over it. And the day is black, white, Latinx. I'm not even making that kind of assessment. I'm just speaking to teachers, right? They are public school teachers. So of course they want to close these gaps and they go to session after session. That doesn't help them do this. Okay, that's a scenario. So then these two brave community practitioners come in and they do something very different. They're going to treat that session like a lesson. They're going to have a learning goal in their heads, and they're going to bring two things that we call grounding for learning. They're going to attend to two things. They're going to attend to content, and they're going to attend to the culture of the room. So they're going to walk into the room with the 30 teachers, and they're going to have content. What are they going to have? Well, they're going to have maybe an article about these disparities and how they go back five decades and where they come from and put those in the historical context of how long children who are not white and children who are not wealthy have been disproportionately affected in the public school systems and where that comes from. They're going to have like a short article about that something that is based on data and evidence and the historical record. And maybe they'll have the actual place, the actual school's data or the actual state data, something like that. Those two things together, that's the content. Have the content. Then they're going to do things that they learned from me in the method to generate a particular culture in the room. So we have our content. We know what we're here to learn about. We're not here to dismantle racism up here abstractly. We're here to handle what's going on in Christina District concretely. And not all the things that are going on, because we only have one session. We're going to deal with these reading scores. That's what we're here to do. We know that. Everybody in the room knows that. The second thing that everybody in the room now was going to have is a sense of how we're going to behave with this difficult content and with one another. So they're going to have some activity that I call grounding for learning something you say, something you do, that's going to help the group. Again, these people, these 30 people on this date at this moment have an understanding that is shared about not only what we're here to learn, but how we're going to behave with each other and with this content. The presence of those two things, which I call grounding for learning, is what makes people feel capable of this work. That is what makes people have what Monique called the stamina for the discomfort. That is also, plot twist, what makes less people aversive to the work. We're in a situation where 90%, 99% of people don't want to do this work. It doesn't actually get me results, and it creates a ton of acrimony. Every organization I've gone to after 2020, so the George Floyd reckoning and those uprisings, I go into organizations, and the DI work that has been done that's been a a lot of money, a lot of trainings uh, has overwhelmed folks, created a ton of acrimony and not produced a sense of empowerment and capacity to do the work. So this is not that. So in this brave community oriented place, those people are now best positioned to get the work done. And yes, guess what? Some of them are really recalcitrant and can be helped. But guess what? Those people are out of options to think that they're in the majority. 
because in that room, they're no longer in the majority. They're in the small minority. That's literally given an opportunity to do this work, to be in their dignity, to feel empowered, to manage their discomfort, and they're choosing not to. That's, you know, two out of the 30. And usually we're acting like it's 29 out of the 30. It's not. So I just wanted to say what the method is about. It's about leveraging the fact that most of us, because this is something that all of us are not in because we're teachers and educators. Most of us have the capacity to learn and change if the conditions are ideal. Right. So, yes, I've been in these rooms and there's somebody in the back looking at their computer and not making eye contact with me. And not, just not trying to be helpful, but that's one person, two people. That's not most of the room. Most of the room, when grounded for learning, they're like, okay, we can get this done. I know where I stand. I know what the material is that I'm supposed to be working on. And I have some assurances about how we're going to behave with one another. Natalie and Monique, I'm really interested in how you would or how you have in the past prepared school leaders. I think it's important for school leaders to own the work that they recognize that there's a need for within their building. And it's important that that ownership occurs so that what is implemented, what teachers are tasked to do, what's provided to the parent in terms of communication as to what is being addressed is not prescriptive, but rather responsive to the needs of the school. Just as Janine indicated earlier that the aspect of the work is knowing your data and what we're here to solve. And I appreciate that she spoke about that it's not some lofty ideas, but rather what is it exactly that we're addressing for this session for the next couple of months? What are those indicators that we're going to try to to know if what we're doing is effective, effective the change that we uh, would like to see? So it's important to make sure that District positions exist to support the buildings so that we are aware of the needs of the leaders. We're aware of not only their needs surrounding their capacity for the work, because everyone has the capacity, but they may need some resources to build them to that space in which that they can fully engage in what they know they need to do with our leaders. We need to support them, making sure that they know that the financial aspects of things will always be there to support the work because there are many things that tugs at the purse of a school building. So we want to make sure that that's there. And we want to make sure that our leaders have accountability partners, mentors, to continue to engage in brief conversation surrounding the work and the impact that it's having and to have an honest space to talk about when that impact is not being reached as quickly as anticipated or as planned for. So we want to make sure that the space is there. This work is critical. Your standards call for that you confront and alter, but here are some ways in which to do this. And here are some ways to measure your effectiveness to this work. To Monique's point, this is not an optional thing. We need to make sure that our spaces are conducive for all of our learners and that, yes, everyone has to play a role, whether there is a huge comfort to the work or a huge level of discomfort. So when I think about leaders, I think about a few things. One of the things that I think about is beginning in a reflective space, you know, going back to that mirror and understanding who we are 
and then ensuring that we understand why we're here. Uh, you applied for this job. And now that you have decided to accept the position, here are your roles and responsibilities. Here's the evaluation system, which is something that we don't try to over comply or anything like that, but it needs to be in alignment with the productivity and the progression versus me saying, I kind of internally don't want you to be upset with me. So I'm just going to make you effective, even though all of the students in your class have a, even before the segregating data, you know, 10% literacy rate, right? That happens a lot. That's a misalignment. And people always default to, oh, you know, it's the systems. Well, that is one system. You know, when we think about accountability, we have not leveraged appropriately so that it correlates to the other factors that we consider when we're triangulating multiple data sets, right? And so beyond efficacy, my question is, do you believe you can do this? <laughs> Not do you believe the young people can learn and perform before we even get to them. Let's take a look in that mirror. Do you believe that you are capable? So that goes beyond skill because I'll get messages from principals, from superintendents and say, well, Monique, you know, how are we going to eliminate the opportunity gap? Like I'm looking at my data and it's just difficult. And then my question is, okay, well, first tell me how you're going to eliminate the behaviors that are perpetuating the opportunity gap, because we have to acknowledge what we're doing to contribute to the issue, because surely we are maintaining the status quo. That's a major contributor when we think about the, the variables regarding the opportunity gap. Why has it gone on for decades? Because we're normalized some of our dysfunctional behaviors. And all of this is through the lens of brave community, right? It empowers us to be able to have these conversations. And even moving forward from what are we doing to perpetuate the gaps? What are you doing to create these gaps? Because I'll give you that. There are some that you have inherited. There are others that we can find examples for where you have created. And that just opens a lot of thinking, you know, no quick answers or quick fixes because you can't put a Band-Aid on everything. We're in an educational crisis right now. And it's really frustrating, you know, when we have a state with a 42% literacy rate, even before disaggregating the data and people default to our district isn't like that. No, your district isn't above 70%. All of your, your young people aren't at 100 for every metric. Then you have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do. There are people who inflate where we are. They may be doing better than others, but it doesn't mean that you're in a space where you should feel empowered to say that out loud without the humility of acknowledging what your role in it has been and how much of a disservice you're doing through inaction, right? Because you have to pick a side, either it's justice or it's not justice. And when we think about this work, it has been politicized so much and people often are turned away from the work because of fear. 
And what they should be afraid of is if they do not do the work, because two African proverbs on two ends of the spectrum. One is it takes a village to raise a child. The other end of that spectrum is if the child doesn't feel embraced by the village, they will burn it down to feel it's warm. So either (laughs) we prepare our young people or we are going to reap whatever it looks like if they are unprepared. What you both talked about reminded me to bring up something, too, that is core to the Brave Community Method. And I don't usually go into sort of scholarly verbiage when I'm talking about this method because it's not really my ministry to do that. But when you were talking, I was thinking about self-efficacy. So self-efficacy is the capacity, the belief that you can actually do a task. Right. So it's somewhere situated between the skills and the will. And it's really a sense of like, I can do this complex task. And what we know from the research on teacher self-efficacy, which we now can apply on about teacher self-efficacy on racial equity issues, is that there are different things that build someone's self-efficacy. And if you think about the the picture that I painted of the Brave Community Workshop, it's actually moving those pieces along. So one of the things that makes you feel capable or grows your self-efficacy to do something that you thought you couldn't do is to be in an experience where you're actually doing it in a contained environment. And that's what the workshop does, right? It puts people who came in thinking, I can't do this racial equity work because it's not for me or because I'm white or because I'm I'm a person of color and I can't deal with these white people acting up or it's not my job. I teach math or Monique is scary or Natalie is scary. These are all the things. It puts those people in a situation where all of that can be set aside and they can actually experience themselves having capacity. It's way more powerful than being told they can. As human beings, we don't work like that. We don't work by being told we can do stuff. The way that we feel we can do stuff is to practice. The other thing that self-efficacy depends on is what they call like an experience, like a vicarious experience. And that means watching someone else do something. And guess what? When I'm in the workshop, it's amazing because people are like, I don't know if this is going to work, lady. It sounds too good to be true. But what actually happens is at the end of every workshop, people who are like, I don't know if this is going to work, have to realize that it did work for the two hours we were together. And I didn't know them. I had never been in their presence. We did not prep. I did not do surveys before. I didn't find out about them. I didn't hand select them. I'm literally going into like Marshall Elementary. I'm going into whatever. Monique and I had 10 schools, I think, in the equity team in a windowless room. <laughs> you know, folks had lots of feelings. It was early time in the morning. They had never seen me before. And it worked. So what I'm saying is that has its own capacity building power, because when folks like that go back, like Natalie went back, like Monique went back, they actually know what they're talking about. So they will leverage that grounding for learning because they've experienced that that helps. And that's the other thing. We were all talking about the feeling of what am I supposed to do? Racism has been here before I was born, before I became a teacher, before I walked into this room. I mean, you know, Monique. Sorry, but these disparities, they're older than my grandfather, right? What do you want me to do? The content part answers the question of what you want me to do. 
because in the book, I go into a very nerdy concept called the post-racist imagination. And simply what I mean by the post-racist imagination is a mindset that develops from practice that's about being able to think through racism, understand it so well that you can think through it. Notice I said through, not away, not pretend it doesn't exist, not skip hop over it, through it. Meaning I, as this third grade teacher, will not dismantle racism in America today. It is the container under which I do my work. Therefore, how do I do my work with that awareness? Well, I make sure that I do not have racial disparities in my class. I have to take responsibility for these kids for this year. Does that mean I close the gap in my year? No, but it means I work really hard to collaborate with the people before me and after to make sure that by the time the babies are in fifth, that we have moved that needle. And if my school is not responsive, then I'm online and I'm creating community with teachers in other places. And I'm reaching out to folks like Natalie and Monique in my district for supports. Because now I understand I have the content of what an abhorrent and immoral thing racism is. I'm not sitting down and doing nothing about it because I know it doesn't belong in the world of young people. I know that. So that's what having a learner approach is about. It's about situating the problem in its proper place, which is away from opinion and feelings. I tell people all the time in my workshop, facts don't care about your feelings. This workshop will do great things for your feelings. This workshop will help your feelings get out of your way. Absolutely. We're all human. We go into rooms with our feelings. We go into room with our upbringing. We go into room with all our stuff. But when we want to learn, we got to be able to put that stuff away and get to work. So it's not an issue of, is this my job or not? It's everybody's job. It's all of our jobs. This stuff shouldn't be happening. So you're not responsible for fixing America, but you are responsible for being an educator in a society where racial injustice prevails and affects young people. Right? That's the difference. Janine, just highlights the importance of when a researcher understands the world of a practitioner. I just so love it when a researcher understands the world of a practitioner, because as practitioners, we want to know that we can do this. We may feel a little bit of reluctancy as it relates to our capacity. And that reluctancy can just be honest that you really don't feel you have the intellectual background to address this work, or it could be grounded in, you know, more nefarious biases. Either way, it has to be owned, right? But the understanding is that the work can be done and it can be done in chunk. It can be fade. It can be scaled up, but it is done. So I really appreciate that aspect of things. I have a section in the book that actually speaks to this because it addresses this question of, and again, uh, before I say that, my thing practitioners is that I actually think that in education, the hierarchy is practitioner and everybody else. Well, it's actually students and communities and practitioners and everybody else. And I would be everybody else respectfully. So it would never occur to me to not address it that way. But specifically, I'm very blessed to have 
designed a method that is actually built like a tool that is adaptive and can be adopted by people who I consider to be the experts. To be clear, Brave Community is a tool for the work that folks are doing all the time. This impossible work that they're making possible, it's adaptive and it's readily useful. And that's why it matters at all for me to be putting it out in the world. Educators don't need more (laughs) unless it's going to be useful. They're doing too much already. So that's the first part. This makes complete sense to me. And it makes me happy that because for different people, again, the bus driver, the teacher, the para, what they need in terms of the actual work will differ. What the method gives us is a commonality of understanding of what the problem is. Most of the time, we don't even have a commonality of understanding of what the problem is. Is. So in the book, I have this chapter that is specifically like a practice chapter that literally goes, okay, so you're going to go do this. Okay, here's the steps. And it lets you as a reader, put yourself in the mind of what it is that you are going to do. Are you a teacher? Are you a para? Are you a district manager? Like what is the actual occasion that you're going to use the method in? And, if, and once you have that in your mind, I walk you through these steps. Think about your content. And for the content, I very explicitly say two things. This brings me back to what Natalie was saying. Guess what? The content has to be bounded, limited. It has to be. Content can't be everything. And that's okay. (laughs) Like literally the chapter is like line one, content has to be bounded, line two. And that's okay. The reason it has to be bounded is our brains can't deal with everything. But also to everybody's point, The issue presented for that group of practitioners in real time, in their own world, is not everything. We have to make some choices. What is it that we're going to use to ground our activities? And that's fine because if you're dealing with disparities in discipline and you read one good article that's well-sourced about how racism intersect with disparities in school discipline, that's enough for one day. That experience of a PD or a meeting is going to go much better because you all talked about this one concrete article that had evidence and had sources and was not, again, feelings and thoughts. It was it put us outside of that world of like, well, I just don't think there's a problem that our black boys get disciplined more. It's like, well, those are feelings. But the fact is that this is racial injustice. It has roots in the racist history of the country, and it does not belong in our school, given its mission. Done. So we all get on the same page, and now we can have a difference of opinion about how we're going to fix it, what are the tools, where's the money going to come from, who we're going to invite to come talk about this restorative justice, or maybe we don't want to do that. That's where the diversity, that's where the expertise, that's where the ownership, that's where the self-efficacy shows up. But what we're not going to do in the Black vernacular, we have a phrase, a proverb. What we're not going to do is act like the problem is just what I feel in my heart on this Tuesday. No, it's a factual, concrete, evidence-proven problem that needs to be dealt with today. How we do it, let's have a discussion. Whether we do it, we're not having that discussion. See? I want to go back to what Natalie brought up, the whole practitioner piece and the different levels and layers. And as Janine just shared, 
if you don't have the data or evidence to back it up, then you're just another person with an opinion. But we need everybody. And so we have to ensure that we accommodate multiple entry points simultaneously and decide how to scaffold the information to build individual and collective capacity. When we're scaffolding, we think about, for instance, during the pandemic, people kept saying, everyone has access. Yay! I was like, no, that's just the beginning. Like, (laughs) we need access. But then also we have to ensure that we're implementing with fidelity and then we have to measure the impact. And then when I also think about the framework or the brave community aspects, right? I'm thinking about how people learn and why the content is bound. And we think about what's developmentally appropriate, what's appropriate for human beings, (laughs) That's when those pieces become extremely actionable. So I'm really happy that Brave Community accommodates for the multiple entry points where we all have to engage in actions to ensure, you know, that we're doing what we need to do, ensure shared accountability and a, a powerful impact. I would just like to thank Natalie and Monique and Janine for participating in this conversation and for just bringing all of this knowledge to our podcast. We really appreciate it. Um, I do just want to ask one last question. Is there anywhere that you would like us to direct folks to learn more about the Brave community work or to any of your work within the state or within your district? Mine is easy. (laughs) Mine is find me. You can find me. So, you know, my email will be in the show notes. After the book comes out in 2023, I hope that we'll have an exponential growth of brave community practitioners everywhere. That's the vision. But right now I am the, I am it. So you can find me and I'd be happy to talk to anyone. Well, I don't have any fabulous research to speak to our book. (laughs) Uh, All joking aside. Follow me on Twitter and the Christina School District and the amazing work that's being done to own each level of the work. Really, there is just so much beauty in this district. And I'm just glad to be part of the work that's happening that's going to impact lives for generations to come. Understanding that there is actually a recruitment and retention aspect to this because, as you all know, that surrounding the educator shortage. So this work, not only in building a brave space in schools, brave communities in school, that will attract greater diversity, greater folks to think about, oh, education may be a space for me because I see how students are encouraged to fully belong in these spaces. Thank you both for sharing that. So we've covered the research and evidence and the social media aspects. So I'll give a practical one. I would encourage everyone listening to us to ask for a copy of their school success plan. And even further, within the schools and the district, ask, how can I be a part of supporting you while, you know, alongside you supporting and preparing young people in our school community. That's really, really important. And I don't think it happens enough 
because some people may feel that they don't have the power to do so. And that would sort of build some bridges that are so necessary to our schools and districts to demonstrate more inclusive practices so that we can wrap supports around our young people because it does take a village. It's the entire community. Natalie, Monique, Janine, thank you so much for joining us today. We will have all of that information linked in the description box. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you, friends, for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of E4E, brought to you by the University of Delaware Partnership for Public Education. For more information about the work being done by the Partnership for Public Education, please visit our website at www.udel.edu.pp.edu.